Okay, how are we doing today? Still got a little bit of an echo? I think we're good? Okay, I think we're good. So, yeah, I'm here. Hi. Uh, it's been a crazy week, but it's been a great one. Um, up here, for once, not preaching on a uh, weird subject, so I'm happy about that. Uh, no plans to talk about uh, Pentecost or the Antichrist today. So really, this is a win for me. Um, we are going to be in the genealogy of Luke today, so if you want to flip over to Luke uh, chapter 3, verse, uh, we're going to get uh, kicked off here in verse 21 here in a minute. So, have you ever noticed that there's lots of Jesuses? You can find this out pretty easily just by asking people one very simple question. Who is Jesus? Some people will say Jesus was a myth. Some people say Jesus was a wise teacher. Others will say he's a failed rebel leader. He's a crazy man. Some people say he's God. Some people just don't know. If we look at television and movies, we see different things, such as uh, Jesus being this very pretty, uh, sort of Western-looking guy. Sometimes you see sort of like a humble very meek Jesus. Other times, uh, you get all sorts of just random directions people will go. Entire fields of study exist for this question. Who is Jesus? The quest for the historical Jesus is very much still alive. You've probably heard of atheistic and agnostic groups, uh, like the Jesus Seminar, uh, who combed through the Gospels and said, what they thought was true of Jesus and what wasn't true of Jesus. And we've all heard that C.S. Lewis quote, right? Uh, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or else something worse. Even still, some people have deep, heart-wrenching thoughts about who Jesus is. They may say something like, he's God, but he doesn't care. He's God, but can he be trusted? He's God, but will he save me? Everyone has a conception of who Jesus is. Everyone has a different Jesus in mind. But, and that's not unlike the environment that Luke was in. He was surrounded by Jews, zealots, Pharisees and Sadducees, Skeptics and pagans. He was surrounded by hurting Christians who believed about Jesus, but had a hard time believing in him. And so Luke writes his gospel. He writes it to a man named Theophilus, uh, so that he may have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. And Luke has an answer to this question. Who is Jesus? And he answers it in the form of a genealogy. And if you're not careful, uh, Ash mentioned this in, this in his prayer, you might just breeze past this text and think it's just an arbitrary addition to the story, that it doesn't really matter, that it's just a bunch of names that were just thrown in there for, like, historicity's sake, that it's just some arbitrary throwaway that Luke threw in there. 
Lots of people think that. But it's not. As we examine the text, we realize that Luke had a very purposeful reason for putting this genealogy here. He's writing this so that we may know who Jesus is. Now, before we begin, we'll dig into the text here in just a minute. I want to address a couple things, because this text has a couple fun parts that people like to argue about. So I think it's a good idea to mention them. Um, This text is clearly theological in purpose. I'm not saying it's not historical and that it's not accurate. I think it is historical and accurate. But that's not why Luke put this here. He was not writing a textbook. He was writing a letter. Now, it appears that this passage is compiled from an older source that isn't original to Luke, which makes sense because Luke says that he's compiling his, uh, his letter from different sources. And we guess that based on a couple things. The structure of it looks like, has like little ticks that look like, eh, it's probably from Aramaic or something like that, which was the spoken tongue then. Um, but... That all makes sense based upon what Luke himself is saying. Lastly, it's worth noting that this genealogy is different from the one that Matthew gives us. Matthew starts out his his gospel with the exact same sort of genealogy, but it's different. And there's a thousand possible reasons why this is the case. It's impossible for us to give an authoritative reason why. We just don't have enough proof, one way or another, why they are different. But that doesn't mean it's contradictory. Just that we don't have a hard reason of why they're a little different. But that shouldn't shake us. We don't have to know every detail. We just have to understand what Luke is telling us. He has a purpose and a point for this. And let's not miss it because we're too busy trying to fact check him. Still, I would like to give one quick possibility of why this is the case. I'm per- you hear a lot of times that this is uh, Mary's genealogy um, and something like that. I'm not a huge fan of that argument. I kind of think that what we're looking at is um, Luke giving us a line of descendants uh, based upon uh, based upon uh, biology, whereas Matthew's giving us something based upon inheritance. I think that's probably what we're seeing, just based upon like who's mentioned in what genealogy. There's a thousand textbooks you can read on this subject. If you're curious about any of it, feel free to reach out to me. Um, but again, let's not spend so much time talking about the little tiny detail that we miss what Luke is trying to say. So, let's hear them out. Luke, chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, I'm going to pause this here for just a minute. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old. Um... Uh, Last week, we found Jesus being baptized by John. 
the next passage has Jesus going off into the wilderness where he will be tempted by Satan. But Luke's pumping the brakes here. He's saying, hold on, before we start talking, we've seen who Jesus is, some, and now we've seen his call to ministry, and we're about to see him go off to his ministry. Jesus is about to begin his ministry. But let's pause for a second and let's talk about who Jesus is. He, and we start with just the simplest fact. He's about 30 years old. We don't even have like a hard number there. It's about 30. Something like that. Which makes sense because 30 was the age of public service. Is when priests began their service. And uh, it's when, interestingly, it's when Joseph begins his service to Pharaoh and when David begins his, uh, his role as king. It's time for Jesus to begin his service. But who is he? Luke tells us. He's the son. So I'm going to actually back us up a little bit to verse 21 now. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with, whom I, uh, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melki, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Menah, the son of Mathata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. My time in seminary is paying off. Uh... That's about the only way anybody can just straight read those. Um, so I'm pausing there for us because, one, wow, that's a lot of names. But we should recognize a lot of those names. We, of course, know his father Joseph. And Zerubbabel and Shealtiel were the two family members who were turned from the exile uh, from to Babylon, and they were actually the two who rebuilt the altar to the Lord in the book of Ezra. Other names appear here and there, but we should recognize three very clearly. David, 
Jesse, and Boaz. Boaz, the husband of Ruth, Jesse, his grandson, who is the father of David, and David himself, the man after God's own heart. We'll continue on with the list. We're almost there. Bear with me. The son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, verse 33, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son... Can we just pause on the name Arni for a second? The son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, again, so many more names, but these names are lifted straight out of your children's storybook Bibles. We see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. We see people like Noah, Enoch, Seth, and Adam. In this genealogy, we find that Jesus is descended from a long line of biblical patriarchs. But more interestingly, we can start to put a few pieces together of what Luke's talking about here, what he's trying to get at. Jesus isn't just descended from them. He's the son they were promised. Jesus is descended from many men who each have a storied history. And we know so many of their stories. But we just simply don't have time to go through every single one of them. So let's pick out two. Let's pick out one right in the middle and one at the end. David and Adam. Hear what David said, or hear what God said to David, rather. He, uh, write, uh, it is written in Second Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You see, Jesus is that son of David. He is the one who God raised up after him. Jesus builds an internal home for God's name in his body and in his church. And he shall be to him a son. Let the weight of that sit with you for a minute. David's son will be a son to God. Think back to last week's sermon and the text we started with. A voice is heard from the heavens saying, This is my beloved son. Certainly we see the Trinity in that passage. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But isn't it just like God 
to just lay more meaning on top of that. Isn't it just like God to take just that simple phrase, He will be a son. This is my beloved son. And just stack that with so much emphasis and power. Luke didn't include this genealogy here for no reason. He had a reason for it. Right after this uh, is my beloved son, he's basically saying, look, this is God's son. This text is about sonship. Yes, this is actually the son that was promised to David. He's the son that is here to establish his kingdom who will reign forever. And he's here to begin his ministry. Listen to him. Jesus is the son of David. He's the beloved son of the Father. Listen also to what he says to Adam. He writes uh, in Genesis 3, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is shortly after the fall, in which Eve eats of the fruit, and then um, there's a whole chain of people blaming other people, and God just goes, okay. And he talks first to Satan and says, I will, uh, I will send a seed who will crush your head. From the first pages of Genesis, we see a promise of a coming man who will come to destroy the curse of sin and to destroy the serpent. And again, we see proof of Luke's purpose. In the very next passage, Jesus will contend with Satan himself. Satan will tempt Jesus with far more than even Adam were ever tempted with. For them, it's a fruit. For Jesus, it's his own life that he's being tempted with. It's, his king, it's a kingdom. It's the entire world that is being offered to him. But Jesus will prevail. And on the cross, we will see Jesus' heel bruised as he is crucified. But the power of death will be defeated. And the serpent's head is crushed there. Satan still squirms with his final breaths, but he's fatally wounded. And one day, by a word of his mouth, Jesus will finish the job. And so, we see that this man is the promised Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the son of David. And he's the seed of Adam. And so much more can be said about Abraham about Isaac and Jacob. So much more can be said by any number of the biblical patriarchs. But there's one final person in this genealogy. And Luke drops the mic here. He says that Jesus is the descendant of Adam. 
who is the Son of God. Now, that probably uh, gives us a little bit of uh, pause there. Adam is the Son of God. If you haven't noticed, what's happening here is every single one of these lines, it says, uh, Jesus is the son of Joseph. But the next one is that Joseph is the son of Heli. And then Heli is the son of Matat. It's stacking. Every single one of these is talking about the last person. They're not every one of them talking about Jesus. And so when we read Son of God, I think the temptation is to go, oh, Jesus here is being called the Son of God. It's actually not. Adam here is being called the Son of God. And that's odd. What Luke's, Luke isn't using that phrase like we think of it. We're thinking of it as Adam is the, defi- the divine son of God, or something to that effect. But that's not what he means. Adam is the only person in the human race, besides Eve, who does not have a father in the traditional sense. And so, who is Adam's father? It's God. God formed him from the dust. He is not born like most of us. God is his father. And in the Greek, that's a little clearer. Because when we translate this, we're translating it as the son of, the son of, the son of. And that helps us to read it and to understand what he's saying. But really, the son is not there. It really just says, um, of Seth, of Adam, of God. It just keeps stacking of, 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 of. And so uh, the sun is at the beginning, which is where we pull that word and why we are distributing it through all of them. But the idea that Luke's getting at here is that Adam is of God. That's where he came from. But there is another son of God who is called the son of God. Remember where we started. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is the son of Joseph. Yes, but by adoption. And Luke gives us a crucial hint of this at the beginning. Did you notice what he said? Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, as was supposed. We've read the birth narrative, haven't we? Luke wrote it. Jesus is the son of Joseph. Yes, but only by adoption. Jesus is the Son of God, too. So he was adopted and given privileges, according to the line of Joseph. But his father, unlike every other person except Adam, is God. 
And this is fascinating because it means Jesus is the other Son of God. He's the truer Son of God. Jesus was a man unlike his father Joseph, in a sense, unlike us, because we all had fathers in the traditional sense. Jesus didn't. He's a man, he is human. But he is different in just that way. In a sense, it's maybe better to say he's not really different, but Jesus is new. And it's this man who can save us from sin. This man will live the life of Adam. He will be tempted by the serpent. And he'll prevail, unlike his brother. It is this man who will live a perfect and sinless life. It is this man who will be our king, like his father, David. This is the son of David. This is the seed of Adam. This is the inheritor of every promise. This is the son of God. And it's amazing that God could orchestrate and arrange such a miracle. That Jesus could be something new and simultaneously be something old. Jesus is able to be the inheritor of every promise. And at the same time, something entirely new. And that's what Luke is pointing out to us. Luke is saying, this is who he is. Jesus is the answer to the longing of his peoples for salvation. Who waited not just for decades. Who waited not just for centuries. But who waited for millennia. Jesus is the culmination of every promise. God's been faithful to his people. Every single one of these stories you can go through, and uh, Hebrews 11 is a wonderful example of this. Like We can go through it and we can talk about every single one of them, the promises God made to them, the faithfulness that he showed to them. And we see it all finally come together in Jesus. God's been faithful to his people, to Adam and to David. And if he was faithful to them, he'll be faithful to us. Because we are now on the opposite side of this story. Before, it was thousands of years waiting for Jesus. But now Jesus has come. And we're waiting for him again. And so we have hope. We have hope of where is Jesus now? Trust in God. He delivered Jesus to us at that point. He will deliver Jesus to us again. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews was telling us. Uh, talking in Hebrews 11 about that great cloud of witnesses. He says... These all died in faith, talking about a lot of this genealogy, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. They didn't get the promises yet, but they did finally come in Christ. And so, I exhort you, think not only of this as the return of Christ, but also in your own lives. Are you suffering? Wait for God. It may seem like he's being slow to answer. To answer uh, everyone else's problems, it took literally thousands of years. But he answered. God fulfills his promises. He loves his people. He cares. Even in the darkness, he will deliver you. On his time. And so, are you lonely? Wait for God. Are you afraid that God will forget you? That his silence means he won't deliver you. Wait for God. All the saints of old waited. And many of them didn't see their Savior until he died. But he delivered them. And he'll deliver you too. Wait for God. So then let's ask it one more time with Luke. Who is Jesus? He's the Son. He's the promised Son. He's the seed of Adam, the son of David. He's the Christ. He's our hope and our salvation, the first fruits of the promise. He's our evidence that we'll be delivered. He's the Son of God. I and Luke tell you these things so that you too may know who Jesus is. And now, now that Luke has that out of the way, he'll go on to talk about what Jesus does. But this is who Jesus is. I'll close this in prayer. And um, uh, Ash will come on up. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. Please... Deliver your people. Lord, we long and we look for you and for your salvation. The peoples have waited for so long for Christ's return. And even in our everyday lives, we are wondering where you are, God. But let us take confidence in this passage that... You answer your promises for your people. And let us look forward to the next coming of Christ. Please be with us as we go out this week. And let us have hope in you. It is in Christ's holy and precious name in which we pray. It is in his name. Amen.